I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We're going to look at one verse this morning. Before we look at that verse, just want to cover some things. If you were here last week, you know that we started a brand new series. If you were not here last week, then that's what we did. And we entitled this series, Ecclesia. This is who we are. And we unpacked what that word ecclesia means. And really, for the next five weeks, we started this last week, as I said, for the next five weeks, continuing to unpack and answer this question, who are we and what has God called us to go after? We're really looking at God's word to define for us what church is and why we exist. And so last week, we looked at that word, we unpacked that word, ecclesia, we began to unpack that word, and really, if you know me and you've been here and you call this place your home, you know that a lot of times we aren't aren't really emphasizing a lot of Greek words. The New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament was written in Hebrew. If we're in the New Testament, we we aren't really emphasizing like you need to know this Greek word, but I think this word is important for you to know. And really what my goal is, is after you, we look at God's word over these six weeks in this series, that you will begin to understand the depth and breadth more of who the church is by understanding and realizing and remembering that word ecclesia. Because that word ecclesia literally means a group of called out ones for a particular purpose. And what is this group of people called out of? Well, if you stand, sit here today and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, in other words, believing that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for me, died on the cross, paying the penalty for what I deserve, and that he rose again three days later so that if I place my trust in the perfection that he has accomplished for me, not in the good that I do, then if I've done that or if I do that, I am called out from the darkness that I have lived in and the penalty for my sin, and I have been brought into marvelous Light. I am a called out one. In other words, that if I am a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, then I am part of his church. But I just haven't been called out by God, been saved by God to now do nothing, but I have been given a purpose. I have been entrusted with a mission. And what is that mission? Well, it's spelled out in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. We looked at some of those passages last week. But here's how we as a church, Salem Chapel, this local group of people called out by God for a mission, here's how we define the mission here. It's this, to glorify God by making and mobilizing disciples who represent, remember that word, represent means to speak and act on delegated authority. Whose delegated authority do I speak? Whose delegated authority do I act? The Lord's. I am on mission for him. What am I called to represent? The gospel of Jesus Christ. To who? Every man, woman, and child. We also talked a lot about last week, the characteristics of a disciple. Man, how do we define a disciple here at Salem Chapel? Well, we believe a disciple is one who's committed to the word, that this is my direction. I'm committed to prayer, 
That's my dialogue with God. That's my communion with God. That's how I grow in my relationship with God is a commitment to the word and commitment to prayer. And as I'm doing those things, then there ought to be a commitment to worship. That ought to be my response to God, that I'm a living sacrifice, that everything that I am, God, I live for you. That is my ultimate act of worship. That's my response. But I also need to be committed to community. I need to be committed to this gathering, to this local body that God has called me to and gathering together inside this place and outside of this place with other believers. Why? Because that's my environment. That's where I grow. But I also need to be committed to mission. It's not just about gathering together with people that don't know Jesus, but it's embracing the mission and understanding that when I walk out of these doors, I am on mission for God. It ought to be my passion. That's how we define a disciple. We talked about how those are being pressed down into every ministry of our church right now in our kids' ministry. Right now as that's going on, they are pressing out those things into your child's life if you have a child there. It was pretty awesome at the end of the message last week. I had so many people coming up to me and being like, man, man, like, like I was just ready. Like, what are we doing? Where are we going? And I was like, we got six weeks, bro. Like, like I can't teach you everything in one week. So, so if you're passionate about that, man, I'm so excited for that. And that's why we're going to take six weeks to unpack from God's word what God's instruction is on how we live out who we are and what God has called us to. But for the next five weeks in talking about that, we're going to share how we're going to fulfill that. And in sharing how we're going to fulfill that, we're going to talk about what are the core values of this church. And so if we're going to talk about that, then I think it's pretty important that we define what a core value is. So here's how I've defined it. I've defined it this way. Something that is a non-negotiable to the framework of an organization or per person that does not change with the culture or one's environment. One's values are the gatekeeper to determine what an organization or a person chooses to do or not do. So if you work for any sort of company, I am almost positive that they have core values. You may not know what they are, but they probably have them. And they decide how prominent they want to place those and how much they want their employees to know those. But, but rarely have I run into a corporation or an organization that does not have core values. I've had the opportunity to be almost 20 years in ministry and I've worked at various churches and our, the churches that I've had the privilege to pastor have had core values. I've even been part of shaping some of those core values in some of the churches that I've been a part of and, and helping start. And unfortunately, I would say that there hasn't always been this understanding of really what a core value is and what a core value isn't. In fact, I'm just going to just uh, admit something so that I can be a little self-deprecating this morning. Uh, I'm thinking about one of the core values of our church that we once had in one of the churches that we helped starting. You know what one of the core values was? Relevant environments. Like, I already feel your judgment. <laughs> but you're right. You're like, dude, what a lame core value. Yeah, because this was, I mean, you remember those church days where it's like, man, how, how cool can we make everything? And and maybe we can play a couple of secular songs as people are walking in so we don't make people coming to church feel uncomfortable. You know those if you grew up in church at all. And so one of our things was relevant environments. Man, we want to have the coolest lights and we want to have the coolest things and we just want to look cool even though we're probably not cool. And... But then as, I, as 
we started to actually allow God's word to define what our core value was, we were like, oh, we were so ashamed. <laughs> because we were like, are those the things, according to our definition, that we would say, man, these are the things that are not going to change with the culture or one's environments. Man, this is going to, relevant environments are going to be the gatekeeper that determines what we choose to do or not do. Like, that's something that we're going to die for is lights. Not that lights aren't bad. We have lights. Thank God for lights. You can see your Bible right now. But you see my point. And so as we have even begun as, as elders to really gain clarity on, man, I mean, what do we want to clearly articulate what are the values of this church? What do we need to go back to? We need to go back to that word ecclesia. Because if the church is a group of people, called out for a purpose, a mission given to, given to us by God, then that means that the core values of this church need to be ones that can be your core values and my core values if I am calling this church my home. So my desire and our elders' desire is that as we unpack these core values, that they're more than what just hangs on the back of a wall when you leave this auditorium that they are values that hang on your heart, that they are ones that you would say, man, if someone was to ask me, man, what are the Pereira's values? Like, like, what are the things that determine what you do and don't do that I would be able to say, well, the core values of the church that I go to, man, they're my core values because I'm a part of that local group of people that have been called out by God for a mission. So if that's what we're stressing over the next five weeks, and let me give you the first core value of our church, and it's this, God glorifying in all we do. God glorifying in all we do. And when we think about the word or the phrase, I should say, glorifying God or the glory of God. You know, I'm thinking, okay, we're gonna talk about this core value this week, and I'm thinking, I gotta talk about the glory of God in 40 minutes. Like, let's just say that's an impossible task. So what I'm going to share with you by no means encompasses everything about the glory of God. But what I do want to give you this morning from this one simple verse is going to provide us with some perspective and understanding about how God glorifying in all we do ought to be a part of our value system as we are followers of Jesus Christ, a part of this local assembly. But isn't it often like that word glory of God or, or God's glory or just the word glory, like we use it so often that it kind of loses its significance? Because we use it for so many things. Like think about it, when you're watching a sporting event, some of you are sports fans, not every one of you are sports fans. When you think about it, like, like your team or an individual that you're cheering for, when they win a tournament or they win uh, whatever it may be and they hold up that trophy and you see their face, right? It, it gives, some of us might even say, man, what a glorious moment that is. And it's true. Some of you are like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember when I was in sixth grade and I won that little trophy in a flag football league. The problem is you're 40 years old, but that's a glorious moment for you. And I'm so happy for you. But we throw out that term loosely, don't we? Or, or maybe, maybe there's a, another instance that I can give as an illustration that applies to more people in the room. You know, Lori and I, 
oftentimes joke with the way that people celebrate things now. We were like, man, we had our kids too early. Because now they have like gender reveal parties. And I'm not even against that. So don't think I'm going down a road where I'm going to make you feel guilty that you had one. I'm not going down that road. I'm not. I think they're great. I just think, man, they just didn't exist 15 years ago. Whoever came up with that came up with a an amazing idea. You've been to one of those, right? Probably most of us. How many of you have been to a gender reveal party? I'm just curious. Raise your hand. Okay, like 90% of the audience. You ever, so, so for the other 10%, let me explain. So sometimes you have a cake and they'll have a cake and you cut open the cake and it will be blue inside or pink inside. And obviously you can determine which one is revealing which child or gender you're having. And, or some people will do a box with balloons. I've been at gender reveal parties where they do that and they cut open the box, the balloons come up and everybody cheers and it's a boy or it's a girl. Hopefully nobody cries, but in a bad way, but you know, a boy, a girl, or maybe, you know, I've even been at some that are really cool. I was like, man, that's a great idea where they'll have like a little golf ball and the, and the dad will like go and he'll swing and he'll hit the golf ball and the golf ball will explode and it'll be blue or pink. What, what, are, the, what are you doing there? You're like, man, it's a glorious moment because you're so excited that you're having a boy or you're having a girl. Or you're so excited for the person that you love that is doing that. Or think about this way you've been to the Grand Canyon or something awesome like that, and you look at that, and you stand there, and you're like, like your mind's blown, because it's so vast, it's so big, it's so beautiful, it reminds you how small you are, and you're like, I, I am looking at a glorious thing, but we use that term a lot, don't we? And so if we're going to talk about being God-glorifying in all we do, then we need to define glory. And here's how glory is defined. Something that is worthy of praise or exaltation, brilliance, beauty, renown. And to glorify something is to light something up brilliantly. Like even the things that I shared, whether that's a, someone holding up a trophy, whether that's on TV and everybody's eyes are on that person and what they've accomplished, what is in essence actually happening? I mean, they're lighting that up brilliantly or you're at a gender reveal party and they, and they are, have you all there and they reveal what the gender of their child is. What is that doing? That is putting a spotlight on that event. It's lighting it up brilliantly or you're looking at an amazing thing in God's creation and you're standing there and you're just looking at it and it's putting a spotlight on that thing and lighting it up brilliantly. That's the idea of glory. And so if that's the idea of glory, then I want us to understand before we look at this verse, this one simple verse, speaking of how we are God glorifying in all we do, we need to understand that God's glory has two aspects. First of all, there's an intrinsic glory. That's the glory that describes it's just who God is. God is glory. God is glorious. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He has always existed. He has always been glorious. No one ever gave him that glory because he is the essence of glory. And if he is the essence of glory, then that means that whether or not I give him glory does not lessen him being glorious. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he existed before anything. He is the only being that was never created. 
Revelation 1.8, the book of Revelation starts off and this is how God speaks of himself. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega being the last. In other words, what does he say? I am the one who is and was and who is to come. I am the almighty. I have intrinsic glory. It's who I am. It's who I was. It will be who I will always be. So there's intrinsic glory, but here's another aspect of God's glory. There's an ascribed glory. See, that's what we are called to give God. That's the glory we give him based on him being glorious. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 6.3, this is Isaiah having a vision into heaven and the angels are declaring this around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 29.1 and 2, the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord. O sons of the mighty, the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now here's what we need to understand. I'm gonna say this again because I wanna get this. I cannot add to God's glory by giving him glory. Why? Because it's intrinsic to who he is. I can't add to it just like I can't add to his strength. Why? Because he's all powerful. But it is a responsibility of mine to give him glory, not because it gives him more of it, but because of what it does in me. It's important to understand. There's a catechism called the Westminster Catechism. How many of you grew up being catechized? Raise your hand. You've memorized catechisms. Okay, a few of you. You know, if you're certain denomination, you probably were more familiar with that. I think that's an awesome thing to do. Westminster Catechism was actually written in the 1600s to help children and teenagers learn doctrine. And if you were familiar with catechisms, you probably know the answer to this question that says, what is the chief end of man? And in the Westminster Catechism, some of you are whispering it, the, the, the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God glorifying in all that we do. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 10.31 because I think it's important that we have an understanding before we read this verse to understand a little bit of God's glory, understanding it's who he is, understanding our responsibility to give him what he is worthy of, understanding that to glorify means to light up brilliantly. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, looking at that one verse, we need to give the context of that verse. Because as I said, we're, we're going to a different passage of Scripture every week in this series, but even in doing that, we still want to give the context by whip, so that we understand better where we are planting ourselves in this one verse. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, what Paul is really speaking of is he's speaking to the Corinthian church, them understanding the liberty that they have in Christ. Galatians 5, Paul says to the church at Galatia, you, for, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So God's word 
gives me the guidelines by which I am to live my life by. But there is much in those guidelines for how I can live. It's my liberty. And so whether you choose to do something in your house and I choose to do something in my house that is in the parameter of God's guidelines, what you do in your house versus what I do in my house doesn't make you more right than me or me more right than you. It's my liberty. And what was going on here is there was this meat that was being offered to idols, pagan worship, and wine that was being offered to idols, And you had certain Christians in the Corinthian church that knew that that was just a statue. It was nothing more than that. And they could buy that meat at a discount. And so they were buying that meat and they were eating that meat. But there was other people that were just saved from that pagan worship. And that bothered them. That concerned them. It was a stumbling block to them because it reminded them of what they just left. And so what Paul is saying is, is listen, you have liberty in Christ, yes, to eat that or not eat that, but knowing that you have brothers and sisters who are stumbling because you're doing that, listen, use your liberty to do what? To glorify God. That's the context of this passage specifically. So when Paul says, so, he's making that point and now drawing a conclusion on how they ought to live, how the glory of God ought to shape their behavior. That's what it's referring to specifically. But knowing that, I believe that we can pan out in the macro and even knowing that he's referring to that situation specifically, we can grab a principle that applies more broadly, which is an understanding that whatever I do, whatever task I am in, whatever environment I'm in, Whatever it is, I need to do it for God's glory. So if that's the reality, then I think we need to ask this question. Why should I value glorifying God in all that I do? It's a good question, right? You ought to be asking that. You ought not just be taking, well, that's what Johnny said, so I guess I'm going to value it. Wrong answer. Why should we? I believe this passage, this one verse, this one simple verse that probably most of you have memorized is going to give us two reasons why we should glorify God in all we do. And the first reason comes from one word that starts out the verse, so. Which just reminds us, right, every word of God is important. See, that word so gives us the first reason, and it's this. We glorify God in all we do because it is our response to God's character. It's our response. See, God glorifying in all we do and that being a value and that being something that we ought to do is more than a command. We got some older kids in here. How many of you guys love it When you ask a question, mom and dad, why do I have to do this? And your mom and dad say, because I said so. Right, you kids, like you can say this, your parents won't won't be upset. Lame, right? Oftentimes lame. Don't say to them it's lame. (laughs) It will not go well for you. But if parents, if that's your reason for everything, commercial break, come to our parenting class tonight. I hated that when I was a kid. 
You know, that works when you're four, five, and six. That doesn't work so well when your kids, trust me, when your kids are 15. We don't like to be done. Why do I need to do this? Because I said so. And I love that God doesn't do that. Like if you're sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I know about, I need to be glorifying God and all that I do. That's not the first time that I've heard that. But I really want to ask why. I know it's a command, but I want to know why. And I love that God gives us the reason. Because God glorifying in all we do is more than a command. There's a reason why we do it. Because I think so often we are not ignorant to the command, but we're often ignorant to the reason behind the command. And oftentimes we ask ourselves this, man, we would not want to admit it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but oftentimes we think to ourselves, man, why am I always told when I'm at church or maybe when I'm even reading in my Bible reminded that I got to live for God's glory? Like, why does God get all the glory? Why am I not to get some glory? I'm told I'm narcissistic if I'm about my glory, but God's not a narcissistic God if all of us are supposed to live for his glory. Like, we're like, man, I'm, how did you read my mind? And that we'd, we'd be so shameful to admit that at times, but there's been times, I'll just raise my hand, there's been times that I've asked myself that. In my 30-some years of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But here's what we have to bring ourselves back to. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. I don't need to convince you of that. And so if I'm a sinner and I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, then that means I'm going to have sinful motivations. So when I'm thinking, man, I want to live for my glory, I want a spotlight to shine on me brilliantly, it's motivated by selfish thinking, which is sinful thinking. But God is perfect. What did Isaiah 6.3 say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He's perfect. He's without sin. And so God being about his glory and him wanting you to ascribe to him the glory that's due his name because he's perfect, here's the result. When you do that and when I do that, it is God's best for me because he's not motivated by selfish reasons. He's perfect. He is holy. And he's given us every reason to glorify him in all that we do. You're like, what do you mean? Well, here's what I want you to understand. God's glory is a thread throughout all of scripture. Let's just take a few moments and to go from Genesis to Revelation. Can you go on a journey with me? Let's start in Genesis 1.1, where we already said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what, after everything God created, what was it described as being? It starts with a G, good. So creation reveals God's glory. God creating Adam and woman demonstrates God's glory. But you only have to go a few chapters, and in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve believe, believe a lie by the devil that God is not good, and he's not about their best, and they sin, and they feel shame, and they are banished from the garden. But before they're banished, God, in the midst of their pain and their failure and their disappointment and their shame, he gives a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will be a deliverer that will come that will crush the 
head of the serpent. What is God doing in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sin? He is revealing his glory. And then you go into the book of Exodus and you see God's people being led out of Egypt and being led out of captivity. And how is God described in that journey from Egypt into the wilderness, leading the people to the promised land? He's described as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And what does that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night represent? It represents God's presence. It represents God's glory. And then we come to, to later in Exodus when the tabernacle is built in Exodus 40 and what happens, that pillar of cloud fills that tabernacle showing once again, my presence is with you, my glory is here. And then in 1 Kings 8, the temple is built under Solomon. And what happens when he inaugurates that temple? The pillar of cloud fills that temple once again, showing and representing that God's presence is here, God's glory is here. But then we come to the book of Ezekiel. And because of Israel's disobedience and continual disobedience to God's commands that he's given them, telling them that if you obey these things, my presence and my power and my promises will come to pass. God's people rebel. And Ezekiel, we're told of this pillar of cloud leaving the temple and leaving the people of Israel. What does that represent? God's glory is leaving that place because of their sin. But in the midst of that tragic moment described in Ezekiel, Isaiah and other prophets in the Bible refer to the promises of God that even though Israel has been disobedient, there will be a Messiah who will come to do what Israel could not do. In Isaiah 7, 14, God says that there will be someone who will come and his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And then we come 400 years of silence that has taken place. But all of a sudden, what happens in Luke chapter 2? The heavens part and the angels appear. And what do they say to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. What does the angel tell Joseph in Matthew chapter one in a dream that the Messiah is coming and Joseph, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. His presence is coming. His glory will be revealed yet again. And how is that glory revealed? It's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, that God in the flesh came down, fulfilling what was said all the way back into Genesis 3.15. And Jesus Christ has come, and he lives a perfect life. He experiences the pain. He experiences shame. He experiences what it's like to be hungry. He experiences what it's like to be betrayed. He experiences what it's like to be tempted. But in all ways, he's perfect because he is the God-man, God in the flesh. He is the Messiah the promised one and he stretches his arm as he dies for you and he dies for me but three days later he raises again why to display God's glory and then we come to Acts chapter 2 and Jesus ascends back into heaven and in Acts 2 the church begins and what happens the Holy Spirit is poured out into that upper room and fills those men and women with the Holy Spirit why to display God's glory and then we come to Revelation 21 and 22 where the new Jerusalem is coming down to the earth and God wipes away every tear and there is no more sorrow, there is no more pain, there is no more disappointment and he writes all wrongs. From Genesis to Revelation, the threat is God's glory. So as I sit here this morning and I'm being told that I need to be God glorifying in all that 
I do. I cannot say that it's simply a command. I have been given every reason that is clearly articulated in God's word so that when I hear that, I also ought to hear, so? Because of this, so? That I am glorifying God in all that I do as a response to God's character. God, you are good. You are good because you are perfect and you are holy and you demonstrated that through Jesus Christ for me. So my response to adopt this value as my own is because you are good. But here's a second reason, and it's the rest of that verse. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's the second reason. We glorify God in all we do because it brings perspective to every part of our life. I have underlined in my Bible, whatever you do, and then circled, do all for the glory of God. I love that. Whatever you do. You're like, even in this, whatever you do. And me holding my wife's hand, whatever you do. Me taking out the trash to the driveway, whatever you do. And me obeying mom and dad when I make my bed, when, I, when they tell me to make my bed, whatever you do. You can't ask a question that this verse can't answer when it comes to God being God glorified. That's why we were intentional in the way that we described it in all we do. It brings perspective to every part of our life. Listen, in the amazing, yes. When you're holding your child for the first time, yes. When you're standing, if you're married, before your bride or before your groom, yes. When you graduate from college after umpteen years, yes. When you made that last payment on whatever, yes. Amazing things, yes. Glorify God in those, but listen to me, in the mundane, in the mundane. Listen, we got a lot of first times moms in this room. Now, let me just speak to that for a second because I remember when we had our first child. And you know one of the things, and I asked, Lori's okay with me saying this. One of the first, one, one of the things that we talked, you know what she said to me? I'm struggling. And I said, why? Because your life hasn't changed. But my life has completely changed. And I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand if you heard that to get you in trouble. But I know we all have heard that. And so, moms, as you're sitting in that rocking chair at three in the morning because your baby won't sleep and you're like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't want to nurse him or her again. And you're rocking back in that rocking chair and you're so tired. And you're struggling with all your emotions because your hormones are all out of whack. You can be God-glorifying in all you do. You can pray over that child. You can take those emotions to the Lord, knowing that he hears. And the most mundane things that you could never imagine that would never cross your mind, that this can be a God-glorifying moment at 3 a.m. and I'm dog-tired in a rocking chair, sobbing, and I don't know why. Yes, you can be God-glorifying in all you do. When you're going to work tomorrow and you know you have this meeting that's stressing you out, 
you can be God glorifying in all you do. See, when this brings the perspective that God wants it to bring to your life, it also helps you determine what am I going to do and what am I not going to do in that moment so that it can be God glorifying in all that I do. It's the most amazing moments and the most ordinary mundane that God wants his glory to be ascribed back to him because it does something in you. Listen, compartmentalization makes any relationship stale and life lifeless. Like whether it's a dating relationship, a marriage relationship, a friendship, whatever relationship is, if you literally said to that person, hey, I love you, and I'm gonna tell you again seven days later, You're in a counselor's office or you're filing for divorce papers. But so often we compartmentalize our life from our worship. It's easier to come into this room and to sing the songs and worship God. It's easier to open up God's word when we're all opening up and glorifying God. Hopefully tomorrow, Monday morning, when you open up God's word to hear from him again, it's it's easier for us to think, God, I'm glorifying you in that moment or I'm glorifying you right now as I'm on my knees calling out to you. But our glorifying God and all we do is not meant to be compartmentalized. It's when I work, it's in my marriage. Listen to me. It means that if I hang around with a bunch of guys and we're watching a football game, man, we can glorify God in doing that. I can promise you I'm taking a nap this afternoon. I can glorify God in taking a nap. And I know we can laugh at that, but that's what I mean. It's a change in thinking. Don't compartmentalize your life. Every aspect, whether I eat, whether I drink, in whatever I do, I want to do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because of that word, so. Because God is good. And when I begin to value that more and more, here's what happens. I want to desire to know God more and more. I'm not satisfied in what I know yet about God. I want to know him more. I want to grow in my intimacy and in relationship with him. That's Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Listen, when I'm valuing that and I'm applying that, man, not only do I want to know God more and more, but I want to desire to worship God more and more in all that I do. God, this is a way to glorify you. I want to worship you in this moment. I want to take my wife out for a date and, and I want to understand that even in doing that, that's a way to glorify you, to worship you. When that becomes a value in my life, man, I want to be led by God more and more. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 talks about walking in the spirit and not going and fulfilling the desires of the flesh that as I say, God, I want to be glorifying in all that I do, man. I want to be led by you and more and more. When you reveal that thing, and I'm like, oh God, I've sinned against you in that. Let me confess it. Let me repent of it. God, I want to glorify you in that. My story my struggles, my pain, my work, my marriage, my family, my hobbies, my friendships. It's all for God's glory. All for God's glory. In whatever we do. He's given us the reason. Why? He's good. It gives us perspective. There's nothing that's off the table.
from giving God's glory. I want you to stand with me. And as, I, as you stand with me, I want to show you that Paul actually gives another reason in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 10. So if you want to just pick up your Bible or don't turn off your phone yet, it says this in verse 33, Paul says, just as I try to please everyone in everything, not in a sinful way, but in a godly way, I do, not seeking my own advantage. In other words, not seeking my own glory, but God's glory, why? But that of many, they may be saved. So you guys go into with a group of guys or girls to watch a football game this afternoon, man, you have an opportunity to show people that don't know Jesus what it looks like for people that love Jesus to have fun, to be God glorifying. You could show people what it looks like to mourn and to be sorrowful and to experience pain, but yet still glorify God in that, why? So that people can see that Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life. We glorify God in all that we do so that people can see that we are different. And so we say every moment of every day that I choose to praise. So let's sing this this morning. Let's give God the glory that he deserves.